Hi, Doctor. Naveen, this is me, Nadia, from Zen Onco and Love Heals Cancer. And really, it is an honor for us to have you today with, you know, the kind of schedule that you have. And you've taken the time out to be with us and talk to us today. Uh, today's knowledge sharing session is going to be one of a kind because of the kind of person we are having today on our session with us to introduce uh, Zen Onco and Love Heals Cancer. We guide cancer patients in their treatment journey with an integrative oncological approach. And today's session is all about spreading awareness and educating cancer patients, right? Dr. Naveen, let me take this opportunity to introduce you here to this podium. Uh, we have with us someone who has done his three years of uh, rotationary residency in oncosurgery and one year fellowship in thoracic surgery in Tata Memorial Hospital, Mumbai. Uh, so has done various fellowships in thoracic and minimal access oncosurgery in Japan and USA. He's also part of uh, the CRSA European chapter colorectal course that he did and ACIO special school of min mini invasive robotic surgery. And that was also in Italy, I suppose, right? Uh, yes, doctor. After that, he spent uh, a year as a consultant surgeon as a consultant, surgical oncologist, and minimal access oncosurgery that he did in uh, Jaipur, Rajasthan, I believe. Yes. And yes. presently, right now, doctor is the national coordinator for VATS and laparoscopic colorectal leadership program conducted in cooperation with Ethicon. His main forte is thoracic and gastrointestinal oncology, where he takes care of. Uh, his main role as a minimal access surgeon and robotic surgery within oncology, right? Doctor, we are so happy. We are really happy to have you here today with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Nadia. Uh, happy to be with you. But just uh, for completion, that uh, that was a lot about uh, the history of how I've got where I have got at, but I am presently a freelance consultant, primarily working out of Jupiter Hospital and uh, uh, Hindu Jakhar, right. Holy, Holy Family, and I'm a surgical oncologist. Yes, yes, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. It really is a big, big honor for us. Right. So uh, we shall move on to our Q&A session and let's take it from there. Doctor, to talk more about uh, head and neck cancers and thoracic cancers and their symptoms, let's just start with how they are on such a rise these days and how uh, we can, as, as uh, someone going through such a thing, how we curb them, yeah? Uh, I think uh, the culprit lies on the inside uh, with both uh, head and neck cancers and to some extent thoracic cancers. The primary cause is uh, tobacco and its related toxins. So I think we are, uh, by and large, one of the most uh, uh, populous countries consuming tobacco in, in uh, the most variants possible. So head and neck cancers really are uh, triggered by tobacco and betel nut, whether you call it the smoked form or you call it the uh, chewed form or uh, with, with uh, betel nut, without, with uh, within pan, smoked cigarettes, even for that matter, unfiltered cigarettes, as we call them, BDs over here. So it's it's a huge industry. And I think it will be a paradox uh, to realize that uh, some of the women 
who are deployed in actually manufacturing BDs in rural India, which is a really huge cottage industry for some of the interiors of the country, are uh, serious uh, victims of, uh, of head and neck cancers and probably significant addicts. Another uh, issue with head and neck cancers is because this tobacco habit starts pretty early in at very a young uh, age, statistics show that a lot of students in their teens are uh, pick up this habit. And I think somewhere uh, we are to blame as a system for this because uh, we allow for its availability to be there to such an impressionable age of uh, uh, children. Uh, I mean, just this is more has been something that has been close to my heart because I'm quite anti-tobacco as it's one of the known causes of cancer. It's, I'm not saying that head and neck cancer does not occur in patients who do not consume tobacco. It is there is a 30% component of them who have who do have it otherwise, but a huge chunk, 60 to 70% is related to tobacco. So I am one of the forebearers who would be a proponent of trying to regularize the sale of uh, tobacco and its products. Unfortunately, it's commonplace for uh, we, you know, all of us as a family to function, even as in my childhood days, I remember, I think all of us would have helped out uh, in the house by going and running across to the corner store to buy bread and eggs, or maybe uh, biscuits or something like that. And the funny part of it, that same store that sells that also sells the panparags, the cigarettes and the other forms of tobacco in pretty bright, flashy, colored packets would invite any child to be interested towards it. And then if he sees someone ex, you know, experimenting with it while he's standing there and transacting for a simple bread and biscuits, he might get tempted to try it out with a leftover change. And that's how the habit starts. So I think somewhere if we could... Uh, regularize the sale of tobacco the way alcohol is sold, you know, only from licensed stores. Uh, it would be a double-edged uh, sword. It will actually, uh, you won't be sending a child to a tobacco store to buy bread and eggs. So you would go there intentionally only if you were addicted or if you were willing to get addicted consciously. And two is it by, by default, the licensing will lead to a significant uh, steep rise in the cost of uh, tobacco. So I think that's something that I would be happy if uh, somewhere someone could implement. And uh, all of these cancers that we see are uh, very morbid cancers. The, the reason I'm concerned about head and neck cancers is because the head and neck zone is a very functional zone. It's the input point of all our five senses from taste to smell to uh, chewing to speech. So when we have head and neck cancers, we invariably functionally uh, compromise a patient, whether it's the disease or sometimes even it's the treatment of the disease. So that's the reason why we, I would be very aggressive about anti-tobacco. Thoracic cancers are, uh, again, uh, a variety of cancers that are caused by some of uh, our habits of eating. Uh, spices are very high in our diet. So that could also be contributory towards some of our GI cancers. Uh, lung cancers are again uh, tobacco-related and pollution-related. Uh, a lot of it does get missed out in our country because of the high prevalence of tuberculosis. So that would be another uh, bone of contention with uh, thoracic cancers where we could, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, be a little bit more vigilant in picking them up early rather than uh, in a very advanced stage. Right. Wow. I mean, you touched the entire topic. Like, you started right from the industries. I mean... 
that is so true what you said it is an economy in itself yes yes doctor yes so moving on to gastrointestinal uh, cancers doctor the intensive work you've done on gastrointestinal cancers and what are your inputs and conclusions about it sir uh see uh, the gi system if you understand the gastrointestinal system is primarily a um, a system which assimilates the nutrition we take in so we're going to be uh, it's literally uh, as we call it uh, what you put in is what you get out of it so yeah. garbage in garbage out so the point is uh, the dietary habits with gi cancers are uh, contributed towards it one of the commonest issues that we are seeing especially i think gi cancers were usually more colon cancers were usually more prominent in the west they have now started becoming more prominent in our country also in terms of statistics the reason was because uh, they had very high very low fiber content and very high uh, refined flour in their diet fast food was one of the biggest components in uh, in the western diet so that leads to constipation and the longer the toxins in the food stay in the contact with the gi lining they tend to instigate uh, mutations in the cells and that, that subsequently leads to the formation of a cancer so i think uh, dietary issues are what are maximally to blame for gi cancers and uh, i recommend that people do definitely uh, should keep that in mind when they think of what they're eating because the trend towards westernization comes hand in hand with a lot of fast food so well uh, considering the current scenario i think covid-19 has completely eliminated that from most people's diet if you have to look at a silver lining in in the on the cloud but uh, well that's that's something that people are getting healthier hopefully that way and uh, there's it increase the fiber in your diet but also one strong misconception i think that people have with the word cancer is that if you've got cancer it's just time to now start counting your days and wait for the pearly gates to open so i don't really think i think that conception needs to change especially with colon cancers in gi cancer they're relatively good prognostic cancers if picked up early and treated well and we've got good treatment options now with specifically typing the cancers and managing them with various protocols of chemotherapy targeted therapy and surgery and surgery has also gone from becoming uh, from the holstedian days of being more and more radical to less and less invasive and less and less radical where we are able to preserve organs and still pre- preserve functionality of organs i would say and uh, remove the culprit uh, tumors so i think colon cancers should be dealt with very aggressively and uh, people should register the fact that don't give up on it early because they do respond pretty well wow amazing wow so um coming to procedures and surgeries doctor endosurgery laparoscopic surgery minimal invasive and robotic gi surgery so many different types how they how does their how good is how does one select which one do we take for certain type of case that we go forth with uh simple how language they they're yeah. all tools just yes. uh, remember that they're all tools in the hands of an artist uh surgery is no major uh, rocket science or uh, i would i mean uh, allow you to re- register that it's there is no pedestal that a surgeon stands on uh, it's just about another form of art 
So the way you would probably use a different brush to make a different painting, the size of the bristles, the size of the brush, because you, you are the artist and you know what's going to give you the right stroke that you want. So that's precisely what all these tools are. They're, they're a component of our armamentarium. I do not want to belittle uh, any particular form, whether it's open versus minimal access, uh, laparoscopy versus thoracoscopy versus robotic. However, uh, you have to register what is indicated at that point. What It's the end outcome that is of importance. Uh, at no point, just because you have a specific tool you're keen on using, do you compromise the uh, clearance of a disease or the management of a disease? So uh, fortunately, I am uh, trained in all these forms. Like we, we've been, we, We've started out in our training years with open surgery. We went on to minimal access, laparoscopy, thoracoscopy, now robotic. So I definitely uh, appreciate the improvement in technology. And I think all of us should. I think it's because of that that we, you and me are sitting and chatting miles apart. But uh, as you have technology improvements in every field, we have them in surgery. And robotic is one of the superior technologies that is available. And uh, it has its zones of indication. Uh, robotic is prefer preferred for uh, precision surgery in deeper cavities and definitely makes it a more comfortable zone. It's like I could travel from Bombay to Pune like, like in, a, in a Volvo, in an ST bus or in my personal vehicle. And even the choice of vehicle could be between a basic uh, car to a Merc or a Beamer. So the point is uh, it's, it's the destination that you have to get at and your comfort zone and of course, like the reason I give this example is because all technology definitely comes at a price. So I do not want to uh, keep it, make people feel that just because they can't afford it, they're getting compromised treatment. Treatment is not compromised. The technique is a little bit more efficient when you use uh, robotic and minimal access, and they definitely have additional costs and overheads that come along with it. Yes, yes, definitely. So when do we finally select surgery as our primary approach? When is it not possible to do surgery as well? And people are generally confused as how is a general surgeon different from a surgical oncologist and how vice versa like. Your thoughts, sir? Uh, so uh, let's uh, first deal with one, the first aspect of yeah. the question. When surgery in... Uh, Tumors. Usually, if I was to just give a rule of thumb, kind of early cancers, early stage cancers and solid tumors are the two key points that are uh, primarily the, the treatment modality is surgery. Uh, largely, treatment for cancer is always a multidisciplinary approach. And the three commonest uh, modes of treatment in cancer are surgical uh, medical oncology, which is chemotherapy, and radiation oncology, which is radi radiotherapy. So uh, we normally tend to run a multidisciplinary tumor board or a meeting where we uh, weigh out the pros and cons of all the reports that are there, stage the disease, and then tailor make a treatment protocol for each individual patient. In that, the role of surgery is either upfront uh, when you have a very early stage solid tumor, or it could be sequenced after neoadjuvant chemotherapy where you shrink the size of the tumor to bring it to a far more functionally acceptable surgical treatment. Because today, uh, the focus is 
also on overall survival definitely but more so uh, thrust is being given on quality of life the last thing i want is someone to live to 100 and curse me for having stretched the remaining 10 years of his life so uh, functional outcome is very important so with that when we use this multidisciplinary approach we are able to time chemotherapy radiation in such a way that even though we are dealing with a solid tumor that indicates surgery we could time it such that the uh, a quantum of resection required is smaller and the final functional outcome is better so it preserves quality of life uh coming to the uh, second aspect of your question was what's the difference between general surgeons and onco surgeons believe me all surgeons are good everybody has uh, when you reach when you do surgery you reach a point where you've cultivated a skill like i said it's an art form so you've cultivated a skill and are proficient in doing the same it is a more a matter of uh, the the way you uh, view the entire case so an onco surgeon has a different perspective that he looks at like i said we would we would not just focus on removal of an organ as a part of onco surgery you are going to focus on uh, how is this patient going to be treated over the next few months to get the best survival and functional outcome so when we look at disease we don't want to only remove the tumor we want adequate margins around it Uh, the concept of what is adequate margins is the perspective that an onco surgeon adds to the treatment of uh, the disease the last thing i want is a compromised margin that leads to a higher propensity of the disease coming back uh, also uh, am i justified sometimes it's like when you've got a hammer in your hand everything looks like a nail so i might want to just chop 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 and you know that's uh, i'm 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 leaking the cat out of the bag here but onco surgeons have this very convenient uh, zone of if you remove too little you were being very precious and preserving the best for functional outcome and if you remove too much you were being very radical so both ways you're right so uh, let's understand that that perspective of what is right for which case and which patient is is what we train in onco surgery and that birds eye view to overall management of the case is the added advantage of an onco surgeon over a general surgeon wow you just put i la- i really like the way you put it it was it, birds eye view of how everything is done in such a nut in a nutshell <laughs> wow so amazing um also i understand uh, your forte mainly is in minimal access surgery sir what are what are your thoughts on how the success rates recovery time after care everything about it sir Uh, i would say i am completely sold out to minimal access surgery <laughs> for the simple reason is that i mean if i could say i am i'm a thoracic surgeon i do a lot of esophageal surgeries which are food pipe cancers where it's a relatively uh, major supra major surgery that it, it removes uh, the food pipe extending all the way from the neck through the chest all the way down into the stomach so you're actually operating in three zones uh, you're going to open three spaces a long morbid surgery and you're going to leave a lot of scars behind for the patient so in this uh, i could safely say in the last 10 odd years of my uh, practice i don't remember having done an open uh, esophageal surgery because minimal access allows me to enter the entire rib cage the chest with three uh, uh chopstick like long instruments which one of which is actually a camera which is like my eyes inside the patient and allows me to operate on the entire length of the food pipe separating it from all the major structures from the windpipe going to the lungs to the uh 
heart and the surrounding uh, necessary as we call it clearance of lymph nodes is all managed so comfortably with just a keyhole surgery so i don't really have to cut open the patient so much and there is uh, a disconnection required at the level of the neck and the stomach uh, stomach level so you take small cuts there you complete the entire surgery laparoscopically and uh, thoracoscopically and the patient walks out with an organ completely replaced with hardly any scars so definitely the rehabilitation the recovery is uh, expedited so i am a proponent of minimal access surgery and especially thoracoscopic surgery vats is my forte and i'm very happy saying that uh, it definitely reduces the morbidity of patients after that and uh, i think uh, where it comes to a choice i would say uh, also be very discretionary when you're using minimal access like i said the same thing about a hammer and nail so just because i'm a robotic surgeon or i'm a minimal access surgeon and there's like a rock of a tumor sitting there which uh, is probably stuck to the bone and uh, i i just want to be you know really uh, brave and boastful of it that i removed such a large tumor even that i did with a minimal access surgery in some way there we've got to be very discretionary about that and that is where minimal access gets a bad name uh, you know i have this common misconception which i'd love to uh, get rid of in this uh, conversation is that a lot of patients would come to me saying oh, sir mera operation open karo don't please don't operate on me with uh, minimal access because usme aap tumor chhod doge like you know you don't have a good enough space to see and you won't be able to remove everything so uh, the the interesting fact is that the camera that we put in when we use uh, to do a thoracoscopy or a minimal access surgery has a 20x magnification so i'm actually seeing things 20 times uh, higher a resolution when i am doing it with uh, minimal access and i'm actually technically my eye is sitting inside the patient's body it's at the tip of the scope that's there inside so i have only a better view of it i have limited uh, ax- uh, range of movement because of operating through a keyhole but the dexterity is very well managed with the uh, excellent vision that we have and that dexterity of the instruments is again uh, taken care of in robotic surgery so that's the added advantage of robotic surgery so i would definitely say don't have these misconceptions and leave the choice of uh, what is best for you to the surgeon with his comfort zone and his discretion if it's robotic is right for you like i wouldn't encourage any prostate cancer surgeon to go through surgery without robotic because that is the gold standard today it's it's where we have the maximum benefit uh but i would find it criminal if i was to have patients going through open esophageal surgery because the morbidity is very high comparatively yeah maybe it was because uh they felt that uh robotic and minimal access surgery are mainly dependent on technology so it's uh, they thinking the whole surgery is mainly on the discretion of the technology more than the doctor it's, behind it so it's a robocop who's operating you mean exactly uh, that was uh, that is what i thought like maybe if they had something you were just telling me that's a misconception right now thinking about it from a layman's perspective i would want the surgeon to be seeing everything right so uh, that is why uh, maybe they would have come up with something like that maybe they thought of it like that so yeah quite true as i said you you've got uh, counseling forms a huge part of any consult or any uh, treatment planning and i think uh, getting uh, the patients misconceptions out uh, helping them uh, kind of uh, get uh, 
can I just interrupt for a minute? Sorry, just a second. Just can you just help me? With yeah, doctor, you were saying. Yeah, so uh, it's not like uh, Robocop's operating as in you, we've just handed over the patient to a robot with a program punched in to get rid of his colon or his prostate or something like that. It's, uh, it's purely a, a computer interface that is between the surgeon's hands and the patient. So the, uh, the arms of the robot go into the patient, but the control of those arms is actually on the fingertips of the uh, surgeon. We actually wear rings on our fingers, which control these those instruments uh, at the console. So uh, this, the computer interface has a huge uh, amount of uh, benefit, as in even any human being has some intention tremors. So even those tremors are buffered because of the computer interface. So you're actually improving the precision of already an expert surgeon. So thereby it is actually improvising the surgical skills of the surgeon. And it adds to the comfort zone because of the three-dimensional, uh, it's, it's like a watching, watching a 3D movie. So it's everything's being done by the surgeon. Wow, wow, amazing. I would love to see one of these one day. <laughs> and uh, maybe when can we not use such techniques and when is it not advisable to have such surgeries? Yeah, so uh, like when you have an uh, advanced uh, kidney tumor or you have an advanced intestinal tumor, which is where the patient has gotten obstruction of his intestinal passage, he has got ballooned uh, stomach where he's throwing up and he's uh, not in a phase where uh, he would tolerate uh, proper general anesthesia, which is high risk for that. Uh, open surgery has its biggest advantage in being uh, quick in, quick out. Yeah. Because you're literally just uh, splitting open, looking at the problem and getting rid of it and coming out. And when you have a compromised uh, general condition of the patient, it's high risk for prolonged surgery and under anesthesia. Or you've got a complicated bowel where you would be having to you know, deal with multiple zones simultaneously. It's probably just wiser to go in with an open surgery. Also, if the size of your tumor is so huge that you're going to remove like a 12 or a 15 centimeter tumor, and then you do the, the you know, entire surgery uh, laparoscopically and then after that you cut open the abdomen by 20 centimeters just to deliver the tumor out so you probably have uh, any which ways uh, you know would have managed it in an open manner hmm. so there are some very uh, basic as i said you should have your priorities well placed that it's the patient uh, who should be kept first on what's the outcome going to be or like i put it in lay language whenever there's any students who are there who train with us is that always keep that principle in mind that when you're treating a patient, what if it was your next of kin on the other side of the table? So exactly that you, you should plan on your treatment, not just because you have the robot or you have uh, some facility available. It should be the right, right modality for that patient. So that is so true. That is so true. Um, doctor, coming to robotic surgery, just uh, tell us exactly what, how we can define it, how exactly does it happen, what are uh, its benefits and how it works for us, yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned to you, it's robotic surgery to just convert it into lay language is purely putting a computer interface between a surgeon's hand and the patient. So, I am now sitting and uh, uh, actually uh, manipulating those uh, robotic arms that are put in through keyholes into the patient's uh, surgical side and I'm manipulating them the way you would use a joystick for a video game. 
so i'm sitting on a console i'm seeing the the typically as you would be uh, playing any of your video games but this is a video game in in like three dimension and i have my head stuck into the console over there where the entire internal picture brought in by the camera is like the my computer uh, screen is my computer game screen rather and my fingers are manipulating the arms inside which i can see on that screen so and the good part of it is uh, you have the pause mode there so you uh, the the this is the plus point for the surgeon if he really wants to take a breath and uh, handle even a complicated situation he wants to take a you know a little time out to put his thoughts together and then continue just get your fingers out and everything's on pause there nothing moves until you're back on the console so it's pretty safe also that way uh, but again it has its indications uh, i think it's very very justified for deep cavity uh, deep cavity surgeries which are uh, precise like as in uh, a prostate prostatectomy is probably the gold standard you want to preserve the nerves around the prostate you want to remove that small little organ sitting between the urine bladder and the urine passage uh, without damaging anything else around it so you are working in a deep uh, pelvis and you are uh, removing something small preserving everything so i think and then you're making a joint back again so that's that's really like the ideal zone but i think some of the other zones is again pelvic surgeries where you do uh, either colorectal or gynec surgeries and then you do these thoracic surgeries again a lot of lung surgeries uh, the amount of precision you can get with a robotic surgery around the main blood vessels going into the lung coming from the heart is pretty uh, helpful yes doctor right rightly said also uh, post surgery um, how is it best that we bring the body back to normalcy sometimes an organ is removed sometimes um, what is the aftercare best for the patient uh, so it's uh, rehab like i said the focus now on uh, cancer th- treatment is uh, not only survival but quality of life so uh, whenever you are sacrificing an organ you have to uh, create certain uh, modifications or encourage certain situations where you should be able to give an element of normalcy to the patient i think one of the commonest uh, things that i think functionally is most morbid because we are a social being and we are who we are because we communicate with each other so if you have a laryngeal cancer that we are forced to remove the voice box you have suddenly uh, deleted that element of communication between two human beings so today we are with, uh, have available with us a, a what we call a tracheoesophageal prosthesis it's a small little whistle like valve uh, that uh, is set between the uh, newly produced uh, airway passage we call it the tracheostomy right at the root of the neck here and the food pipe and we just puncture a hole and place this little whistle there and uh, it does wonders the patient can actually blow air through that whistle and uh, manipulate that with his tongue and speak as comfortably as us just not as fluently we he'd have to take breaks between every sentence because he has to breathe in in in, in between so that's that's called rehabilitation and that's replacement of an organ so similarly you have uh, situations where uh, dietary modifications because of removing a part of the intestine and stuff like that Uh, has to be kept in mind tongue cancers remove a component of the tongue so speech therapy is used to rehabilitate them yeah doctor in comparison with a person at a first stage and an advanced stage how is it that 
you as a surgical oncologist decide the the best treatment plan for uh, the patient and what are your challenges the basic challenges that you face as an oncologist yeah uh i think like i said again the key point is perspective in early stage cancers your uh, basically in both your intent of treatment is very different in early stage cancers your intent of treatment is curative you're looking at this patient as a long term survivor so you want to be as radical as you can to get rid of the disease avoid a potential zone of recurrence and uh, maintain the best functionality that you could uh some of the commonest zones here i think are breast cancers and uh, they really have a good long survival so i think planning them well is important and breast conservation surgeries come a big way that way uh visa we when you're looking at advanced cancers your intent of treatment is palliative uh palliative if i was to define the word is actually symptomatic and supportive treatment so you uh, have to learn to draw a line that you're not going to really empty every uh, facility that you have in order to be you know aggressive on that tumor you know you've i mean i know it may sound pessimistic but you kind of have to register the fact that you're fighting a losing battle you just want to lose uh, or rather have the the remaining time period of the patient spent in a very dignified manner so what you're fighting for is a dignified uh, end of life situation so you need to incorporate chemo even sometimes there are few palliative zones where we may offer surgery also yeah head and neck cancers are some of the zones where palliative surgery plays a role and uh, you may even offer palliative radiation when required so you need to understand that treat only that much for which the patient has symptoms and spare the sur- surplus treatment you have for when he develops symptoms if he does correct correct um coming to a rare case you have come across doctor in your experience would you like to tell us about uh, these rare cases if they are and i guess it's thoracic is something that's very close to my heart and i would it's i, I mean it's it serves actually more like as an anecdote also uh, endobronchial carcinoids and are uh, one of the very rare variety of cancers there to understand it in simple language it's like a small mushroom growing inside your airway and uh, it it's like uh, like you know a mushroom has a little stump and it has a bulb on the top and your airway is like a pipe that takes the uh, oxygen down into the lungs so if one of these ping pong balloons sitting over there just decides to choke up one of the airways your that part of your lung doesn't function so it's a tiny little thing sitting there but it uh, can completely compromise a component or uh, an entire lung also so it's this uh, dates back to a good 6 7 years it happened so incidentally that uh, a young boy this the incidence for carcinoids is in young boys so a 32 year old young chap was admitted at a south bombay hospital and because he stays in thane and his uh, father had been uh, treated for advanced lung cancer under our care he uh, transferred back to the intensive care in jupiter and i got a call from there is he has one lung that's completely collapsed and uh, the pulmonologist wanted me to scope him to find out what the issue was and when we scoped him we found this little carcinoid choking the left main bronchus it's the branch of the trachea the windpipe that goes to the left lung and uh, that's why the whole left lung had collapsed 
and we needed to operate to remove that but he wasn't fit enough for surgery because he was breathing on one lung so what was planned was actually as an interim procedure to do a bronchoscopy a small scope that goes in there and we use a laser again technology to burn out that uh, bit of the mushroom or the tumor to channelize and open the air passage so that the lung gets ventilated or gets air going inside and we did we started the whole process with that and the patient's kept a little awake it's awake sedation we call it like he's sleepy but he's a kind of breathing himself mm-hmm. and uh, i started the process it was one of my first then uh, attempts to do that and it took a good long two and a half three hours but it came out so well that at the end of it we had practically debulked the entire tumor there was nothing left at the end of it and uh, a week later he was scheduled for actual surgery and that actual surgery amounted to opening the entire chest bone going behind the heart re- removing a bit of that uh, windpipe and then rejoining it back so major surgery for a young boy so a week later when i rescoped him planning the surgery and i saw there was nothing out there but a scar so somewhere my conscience wasn't justifying doing such a major surgery for just a small scar and i took a frank opinion of a lot of my seniors in the city and from uh, esteemed institutes and they came back telling me that there isn't enough data to prove uh, that what you've done is enough but it's such a rare cancer and if he's going to be diligent on follow up we are game with it that you could just keep him on observation the boy has been on follow up regularly and uh, has even migrated now on an IT job to LA and he does come co- communicate regularly so that was started out a series after which actually that encouraged me and I've dealt with a lot of these tumors endobronchially they are of course few and far apart they don't come that frequently it's usually one or two a year that we get by but it saved the patient a, a portion of his lung and a major surgery amazing such an inspirational story that is i mean for you as a doctor as well wow amazing amazing i mean uh, we we tend to forget the kind of uh, work that you give put out there for all of us as patients and being on the other side myself you know and i really ha- after hearing this i really want to thank you doctor for that like the work that you put in is as a doctor is just amazing Wow. Uh, believe me it's it's your own drive it's it, the satisfaction that a doctor gets at the end of it is way more than that so it's it's actually serving our own purpose so honored yeah doctor um coming again to caregivers uh out there uh what is your take and what would you like to advise them when it comes to palliative care and things like that what is your message to them as uh, as part of the caregiver counseling part yeah uh see like i said palliative care is symptomatic or uh, treat the complaints when they are, when they arise i think some way we have to register that and palliative care involves a lot of counseling uh there is the psychosomatic issues are very very significant mm-hmm. patients are already in a zone of uh, depression and uh, end of life care so we have to kind of reach uh, that level as bring them to a point of acceptance so i think cannot undermine counseling in any manner counseling also of the relatives so some sometimes when you are in this phase of palliative care we come across the situation where uh, the patient is not going to benefit with the treatment you're giving them especially when you're talking of uh, therapeutic uh, treatment like chemotherapy surgery radiation but uh, the relatives are um, so um, at a loss to be an acceptance of the of the 
situation for their next of kin where they would be very adamant i want to leave no stone unturned i would like to do this please do this please do this so uh, very often you then have to also work on the caregiver that understand what we are doing is not going to benefit the patient it is probably being done only because you want it done or because you are probably uh, have the facilities to be able to you know the finances to be able to sustain it sometimes it's expensive treatment that has very poor outcome so the caregivers need to be counseled on that i am sometimes also open to the idea that you could be a little lenient because eventually the caregiver is the one who's going to survive the patient so the last thing you want to do is leave the caregiver living in guilt for the rest of their lives that you know i didn't do this for my next of kin so sometimes we do play along counseling them that you know the outcomes compromised but if it's going to make you any happier or comfortable and it's not really you're not really selling your house to uh, support such a uh, unindicated treatment then we could probably uh, help uh, and go go along play along with you for a bit Mm-hmm. so that is where i think caregivers counseling is important and otherwise i think palliative care should be strictly restricted to symptomatic treatment and do not do not do not i time and again repeat uh, be stingy in painkillers the last thing you want is patients to suffer pain in their end of life phase there is nothing like all the silly questions that come up will i get addicted to morphine or is this right for me will i damage my kidneys i mean when you're on end of life zone i want you to be comfortable yes that is so true that is so true and my final question to you doctor um what would you suggest to all of us out there to lead a healthy lifestyle be cancer aware and most of all to the patients and caregivers out there watching this how is it there's no hard and fast rule we all know that but from your perspective what would be your input sir um i think my simple answer to to that would be just common sense i think if we were able to just register and keep our eyes open and just our actions are more aware and conscious of what we are doing uh, you can't say that you smoked and you didn't read the warning on the uh, cigarette pack so stay away from tobacco it's really one of the known culprits and a preventable cause of cancer uh, uh, another thing is uh, a lot of uh, hormonal manipulation is happening is especially in our uh, the millennial generation uh there is uh, manipulation of uh, food items milk products uh stuff that is uh, pumping in a lot of excess hormones into the system we also are because everything's production based uh, as to the profit the bottom line so everyone wants to pump hormones into either the cows that give you the milk or the, the vegetables and fruits that come to you it's all going to backfire and it is it is backfiring so i think somewhere draw a line uh, learn to live a balanced zone increase the fiber content in your diet avoid uh, super refined fast foods breads etc are okay for i'm not saying they're bad but in a balanced manner i think it's important physical exercise is very important keep your eyes open for anything unusual that's happening to you if there's a non healing ulcer in the mouth if there's a lump or swelling that you've noticed anywhere in your body i think for women the commonest zone is uh, in the breast area uh, and also uh, please remove that uh, sense of uh, i would say i i see a lot of that in women today also that uh, 
you know, they, they don't want to discuss any cancers related to their private parts. A pervaginal bleed that is uh, post-menopausal is definitely a red flag for any kind of uh, uterine cancer or cervical cancer. A lump in the breast could largely be non-cancerous, but cancer should be ruled out because breast cancer today, if up early, can really be treated very well. So why, why miss the chance? So somewhere I think uh, they, we need to encourage women to come out of the cupboards uh, and uh, you know discuss their problems. Uh, we, we see that shyness in our uh, culture a lot. So I think somewhere we should encourage them to express their problems. Also any uh, kind of indigestion, uh, acidity, we have this easy idea of self-doctoring ourselves with a Rantac or a Pandy. Happily do so, no problem. We all love to eat those Pani Puris on the road and then come back and pop a Rantac. But uh, uh, as I would suggest that if it doesn't settle down in 14 days, two weeks, four weeks at max, do approach a doctor because you could have something more uh, serious or sinister lurking inside and should be investigated. Don't ignore it too long. So these are, I think, some uh, basic uh, red flags that we should not ignore. Unindicated blood in stools, uh, blood in urine, uh, like I said, postmenopausal or intercoital bleeding are signs that you should. You, I mean, this is common sense. It's not happen, It's not normal. So I think we should report to to a doctor. Wow, amazing! Thank you so much, Doctor Naveen, with for being with us today. It has been such an eye-opening experience for me myself because you were talking about so many basic things that we had to inculcate in our lives. Wow! Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time out from your busy schedule and giving us this opportunity to talk to you like this and on a one-on-one -on -one session where we get everything out of your understanding and how you see things from your perspective, right? Thank you so much for being with us. Really, it is an honor. And from Zenonco and Lovelace Cancer, I want to thank you on their behalf as well. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Nadia. And yes, the punchline is uh, love heals. So uh, most diseases are psychosomatic. Uh, spread the cheer around. Wow. So well put, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a All good much. evening.